Hey, YouTube theologians, Pastor Wolfmiller here, together with Pastor Andrew Packer, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Ontario. I didn't, I didn't detect your uh, Canadian accent at first, but I'm starting to hear it now. So I, I hate it well. <laughs> answering, answering your questions. Uh, what do we got, Pastor Packer? Um, this is one we. Um... It's longer, it may take a good deal of time, but it's on the problem of evil sexual abuse and God's will. Um, I'm going to read most of this because it's uh, uh, she goes into a lot of detail about why she's asking the question, which I think is helpful. Um, she wants to know um, when her sister left the LCMS in favor of a reformed church, she studied reformed theology and she was hit over the head with if it happened, it was God's will. He is sovereign. She says, yes, I agree. He is sovereign. And of course, he is whether or not I agree. Lord has had my heart from my earliest memory, a great blessing from him. Never did I think he intended the abuse that it was his will. But I know he didn't stop it. And until I looked at Reformed theology, I somehow had comfort from knowing he had warned me that there would be tribulation and it is a sin-sick fallen world we live in. Yes, I know that all things work together for good, not our good. But with something so vile... It sure can be tough to see. I've had glimpses of possibilities finally in my 60s. I must and do trust him. I would like a biblically-based response for the Reformed and just haven't gotten there yet. Perhaps the simple truth that God is good, no one is good except God, is the trump card. Clearly, sexual abuse is not good. A response from you also that may lend hope for a friend who has been raped and for all the children abused, perhaps especially by priests and pastors, would be appreciated. So there, there's a lot there. Uh, the center of it, though, is um, when, I guess, uh, her conscience being afflicted over the fact that she heard, well, if it happened, it's it's God's will, and you, that's just, just the way it is. Um, she's wrestling with how to talk about that and understand that. Yeah, it's helpful. So there is evil in the world. It's maybe helpful to talk about there's natural evil, which is bad things that happen in creation. Then there's moral evil, and that's the bad things accomplished by people. That moral evil is sin. Here, and it is not God's will. So here's where I think the, the just the interesting theological mm, rub comes in. We, we can, when you say, how do I know God's will? The tendency of the Reformed is to look at history and say, because God is sovereign, then history is his will. So we, dis we discern his will through history. The Lutheran instinct is to look at the commandments and to say God's will and also the promises, but God's will is the commandments. Now, what we see is that the command of God and the history of the world are in constant conflict with one another. So, for example, the Lord says, you shall not kill. And then we see the history of Moses killing the Egyptian or David killing Uriah. We, we, we see the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, but we see David and Bathsheba. We see sexual sin everywhere. And so you say, oh, let's, so let's just take, let's just take that Moses murdering the Egyptian. And let's, and all the, this is wrong. It was an evil act. Let's just say it's an evil act. That murder. Was it God's will? It happened, but it was a violation of the commandment. So that the reformed answer is, 
yes, but no, the Lutheran answer is no, but yes. In other words, when we see history, what we're seeing is not an unfolding of God's will, but rather an unfolding of the breaking of God's will, of fighting against God's will, of resisting God's will. Now, the Reformed or the sovereignty of God, or even we might say, well, God could stop it if he wanted to. Well, okay. That's, but, so so in a way that the Lord will, will, I don't know if this is a right, will take credit or will, he will endure all of the breaking of his will. He, he will suffer the breaking of the will. This is the biblical language. He's not causing these bad things to happen, but he, he, so he remains in charge, but these things are happening precisely against his will. So we can say it was not the will of God for Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. We know it because he commanded it. It's not the will of God for Moses to murder the Egyptians. It's not the will of God for anyone to be abused in any way, hurt, harm. It's, it's not the will of God. This is, this is not God's will. But the Lord in his sovereignty will come around to these, to these attempts to subvert his will and will use them somehow for the good of those who are called according to his name. That's the promise of Romans eight. Uh, the the old guy, the old theologians would say things like, "God draws straight with crooked lines." In other words, all these breaking of his commands and resisting of his will eventually works out to our salvation and to his own glory. And the mystery that we cannot conf- we cannot I don't know we cannot comprehend. We can't get there. But I think if we if we lead with the Ten Commandments as the expression of God's will, at least that's his expression of his of what he wants from us, then every sin is a breaking of the will of God, is a resisting of the will of God. And I think that's a way to begin the conversation. You want to reflect on that a bit? No, I think that's helpful. I think when we start trying to figure out, um, we're talking about merely in terms of well, it happened, therefore it was God's will. Um, quickly, what gets lost in that is uh, God's mercy and grace. So it takes the person suffering their eyes off the cross and trying to figure out what God's plan is and all of this rather than, um, you know, I, I don't, I can't always tell someone why this is happening besides, like you said, like this is sin against them, but I can at least point them to the cross and say, I don't know exactly why this is happening, but I know Jesus suffered for you. Uh, I know God loves you in the midst of your suffering. Um, uh, to me, that seems like a better starting place than just patting someone on the back and saying, well, it's God's will. I mean, that seems kind of heartless. It doesn't seem to offer them any any hope. Um, and then it does, I think, make them think that that God intended evil for them. Um, you know, when you, when you t- start with that. And, and I realize it gets into complex issues. Um you know, and even our confessions wrestle with this, like in the form of Concord Article 11 on election and predestination, all those things. But I think at least someone who's suffering, uh, starting with, yeah, I think we can say something. I don't know why this happened besides this wicked person did this to you, but here's here's what I know Jesus did for you. Here's how I know God loves you and has suffered for you and um, doesn't want you to um, think he's against you because this horrible thing happened to you. Because it seems sometimes the answers pile shame upon shame, right? Like they're they're ashamed that this was this happened to them, 
they may even feel guilty that this happened to them because sometimes they feel like it's their faults, you know, victims of sexual abuse and things like that. Um, and then when you just keep more of this on them and say, well, that's just the way it is. Um, I just don't find that a helpful starting point ever uh, in those conversations. So, so, so I think what you said is, is helpful and, and good. Um, by starting with the Ten Commandments, that they violated God's will clearly because they, they sinned against God and against you in doing this. The reform try to, to try to unfold this by having these different kinds of the wills of God. They have the perfect will of God and then the permissive will of God. I, I don't, I don't, I, I've never heard Lutherans talk in that way because I think it just, because what the reformed will say, well, it wasn't the perfect will of God for this to happen to you, but it was part of the permissive will of God. And I, and that, I don't know. I, I, I don't, it doesn't seem like that's a satisfying way to approach it. It's just to say, well, okay, how do we know what God's will is? We know we know that God gave the commandments and said, this is what I want you to do. That's my will for you. And then we know that he sent Christ, the, the good and gracious will of God is that all would come to be saved. This is God, God desires none to be lost, but all to come to salvation. That's his good and gracious will. And we, that's God's, that's the will that he's told us about. And when we try to sort out how God's will intersects with, with history in, and how his sovereignty interacts with the, with the, with the freedom that he gives to us to act as human beings toward one another and so forth that it you just it's a confounding thing you just can't you can't get there we could, we just know that this that the lord can can again he can weave a beautiful uh a, a beautiful rug with very uh stinky nasty threads so so that it all kind of sorts out in the end but but we can't see it from our perspective. We just know what he's told us. And that's the Ten Commandments and the Creed. That's the will of God. Yeah, I, I think um, when you, if you tell someone who's suffering, uh, well, it was God's permissive will, not his decreed will or something like that. It doesn't help any because then the question still is, well, why did God permit it then? I mean, all you've done is move the question back the, to the next level, right? You've just leveled it up one. Okay, well, you've answered that, but why did he permit it? And then you're still stuck saying, I don't know. <laughs> like it's, it, So I, I've never found that helpful to direct people to that, at least in pastoral care or counseling, because it, this, the question still exists. They still want to know why, but we don't often get the, the why question answered in this life. So I think directing them, as you said, to the Ten Commandments, to the Creed, uh, to Christ on the cross is much more helpful than trying to discern what it means that God permitted it um, and why he permitted it when you or I aren't ever going to be able to answer that question in this life um we, we, we don't know we know we live in a fallen sinful world and that these people have sinned against god and them by doing that but i i can't step back and try to peer into to god's uh eternal counsels and figure out why things have happened the way they did that's and i think trying to do that just leads people to more despair and questions right um we had this idea of when you're in the room of suffering, you think that there's a door and it says, why? And you think I can get out that way, but you can't. It's locked on both sides. It's nailed shut. You can't get out that way. But we're trying. So we're scraping at the why door, trying to th get out of the suffering. But there's another door, which is who. And through that comes Jesus. So he doesn't, he doesn't open the why door to let us out. It's not a way out anyways, but he comes through the door to be with us in the midst of it. And that's the, 
that's kind of the different, totally different approach to suffering that the scriptures would point us to. Okay, so that's a tough one. It is. It's, it's heartbreaking, you know, when people are going through that because, um, but that's why we're here, right? To, to bring them the gospel, even if we don't have uh, full answers to all the questions, but to point them to Jesus in the midst of that, to the who, as you said. Um, I don't know if I'll follow up on that if you want to debate me on the fact that Moses didn't sin or if you want to go to the next question. Well, so that's <laughs> so I was thinking that that could be a bad, uh, bad example because I needed a clear. So David and Uriah would have been a better example. So, yeah, because um, yeah. I think Acts 7 shows that uh, Moses was acting as deliverer um, and that he wasn't in the wrong. The Israelites were wrong for rejecting him as deliverer at that point. But I'll gladly concede the point. <laughs> Um, let's see. This is from a, um, someone found an article. Uh, the guy's name is Richard Beck, Roman Catholic. Uh, the main quote that, that the questioner quotes for us is probably, um, all we really need. Um, one of the outcomes of the Protestant Reformation was profound collapse of morals and Christian piety, carousing, drunkenness, gambling, prostitution, public indecency, and adultery skyrocketed in the wake of the new gospel. Church attendance and giving also took a huge hit. So, and this guy says all of this is because of Luther's understanding of free will. That that Luther's Luther's bondage of the will is what leads to all of this sin and wickedness. Um, although I didn't see him discussing things that were going on in monasteries during the time of the Reformation. But anyway, um, so go ahead and uh, answer that one. Oh, so. Uh... First of all, what matters, we, we are, th this is a very, um, what, it's a very, this is a very utilitarian view of truth. Like, we want to teach whatever helps morals best, you know, so whatever, whatever doctrine makes people behave better, that must be the true doctrine. So uh, he, of course, w the, the writer would reject that. He's just pulling it out as a polemic against Luther, which is basically what it takes to be a Catholic. You have to pretend like you obey the Pope and really hate Luther. Like those are the two marks of, of Catholic theology is a, Oh, these guys, I'm so, I, this gets me so worked up. These guys, <laughs> I can't. I, we found a question that broke you. This is because <laughs> these, you know, the order of Catholic trolls, I don't know that they just, you know, and they'll be here in the comment section. Just find them below if you're watching this on YouTube. This, when you just mention the Pope and the sacred order of Catholic trolls comes out and they they start doing their sanctimonious accusation. Okay, so this, this accusation existed at the time of Luther also. And, and Luther responded by, look, not only do we not forbid good works, but we command them and teach how they must be done. If you just, I, I would just present as exhibit A, the large catechism. And the two-thirds of the large catechism that Luther spends on, on the Ten Commandments, and maybe even the preface to the large catechism, when he's going out on visitation and he says, good Lord, what misery we beheld. In fact, Luther himself says it. The only, the, the only uh, thing that the people are good at is they've mastered the fine art of abusing their Christian liberty. <laughs> so that the, the, I suppose there is a danger um, that the gospel can be abused. But, um, I mean, look, you, 
Jesus could have avoided suffering by not being incarnate. And it, it just doesn't, like, Paul talks about this in Romans, where he says, should we sin more that grace would abound? And and Paul could have said, look, you, let's just make sure that, that that question never comes up by never preaching the gospel. And I, and I find this not only in Catholicism, but I was reading recently, I was back to, um, this knowing God by J.I. Packer. You never answered if that's if you were related to J.I. Packer or not. He's my uncle. He is your uncle. No, no, he's not. <laughs> I used to get asked that all the time. Oh, but no, no, no relation as far as I know. I guess so it's I'm, possible. I'm I'm back to I'm back to reading your uncle's book and um, and he just can't let the gospel be free because and I, I he wants to forgive sins, but this fear of well, if you just forgive sins, then people won't work. If people won't do, people won't strive, people won't whatever it is. And so there's that that fear, which it, it's, it undergirds Catholic theology. It undergirds Protestant pietism. It's the, So that's there. So, okay, so what would we say to this? We say, first of all, look, if, if God is willing to have the gospel abused, people abuse the gospel, uh, if God is willing to take the risk, then so are we. Fine. Should we abuse the gospel? Should we warn people about abusing the gospel? Absolutely. And what do I mean by abusing the gospel? The, the gospel forgives sins. It does not excuse sins. And so one of the marks of antinomianism or, or gospel abuse is that I say, I use the gospel in my own kind of internal conversation and my own self-justification to, to pave the way for me to do something against the Ten Commandments. So I'm abusing the grace of God to accomplish something. It was a problem in Rome. It was a problem in Philippi. It was a problem in Galatia that the Judaizers were trying to fix by their own preaching. It was a pro it was a problem in the Reformation. It was a problem in the Catholic Church. It's a problem in the product. It's a pro it's everywhere. Jesus gets mentioned. This is a this is a thing that is going to come, but we just cannot. You, we we cannot set up hedges around the free gospel to protect it from abuse. That that is almost a definition of what the Pharisees did. They were setting up all these hedges around the law so that the holy things couldn't be abused. But then they can't be used either. And Catholicism, insofar as it tries to coerce a moral life through Moses and to protect the gospel from the abuse of this, it just obscures the gospel and obscures the forgiveness of sins. And obscures, and this is the chief problem, obscures the doctrine of justification. So that now the, you, you can't even talk about justification in the Catholic Church. Uh, the, the only way they talk about justification is in the context of canon law. You, you cannot even manage to get into heaven. They, 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 they've so, they are so interested in protecting us from the gospel that they're protecting God from our sins by inventing purgatory, the obscenity of the whole thing. And then to say that that's what God wants. Sorry, I, I just, I should have a blood pressure cuff on whenever people ask me about Catholic doctrine, because it just, I, so I hope that you all will excuse my, I'm trying to rein it in here, but your thoughts on that. Well, uh, uh, to add to what you said, it's, it's interesting. I found several things interesting, just even from the quote. I would love Richard Beck to currently compare Mormon piety to Roman Catholic piety 
and Mormon church attendance to Roman Catholic church attendance. Because if this is the way you're going to, the road you're going to go down to, to bash Lutherans, how is that faring for Roman Catholics right now? How is that working out in their overall church attendance? How is that working out in their overall piety? Because uh, from all the things I've read and seen, it's, it's not working so well. Um, but that's always the problem with legalism, right? So if you're just going to compare, you know, if you want to do it that way, then the Mormons are going to beat them, even though they, they have zero of the gospel at all, right? But they're going to win right now if that's the battle. Um, so it's just an odd, just an odd thing to pick and not even, and to blame it just at that time, as if um, there was just this, a ton of piety before the Reformation in the churches, um, as if the Reformation is what brought about this um, impiety. When when Luther went around, the people didn't know the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. Um, weren't they previously Roman Catholic? I realize it's an anachronism, but it, they didn't know anything then. They didn't even understand their baptisms. They didn't understand the gospel. Um, it's just such a weird thing to, to pick on. Um, and especially because it's been answered so many times, like all of our confessions answer this, um, this idea that Lutherans don't care about lives of holiness uh, or good works. It's been answered like a million times. So to blame it on th this understanding of free will, which doesn't even say, right, because we even acknowledge Luther does this too, that when it comes to those kind of things, they have the will to to be nice to their neighbor, like to do these outward things. So the problem was their will was bound in when it comes to becoming a Christian on their own. Like they can't make a dead person alive. They can't make them un themselves undead. Um, so the whole thing is a confused mess. And I'm surprised those are the best. Sometimes it seems they come up with because it's kind of ridiculous on every level. Um, Luther makes these Roman Catholic apologists go crazy and say absurd things. Like I, I my favorite is this. Luther started the Reformation because he was very lusty and he wanted yeah, to get I was, married. I was just going to bring that up. That's the only thing you ever see. Like the right, that's what, in fact, I think I saw it in the comments and this may have been in a different place. I thought I saw it in the comments on that article. Uh, someone brought that up because of course, I mean, that's like, let me see if it is in here. That's um, what, and of course, that's what you do when you're lusty, you get married, you know, how yeah. shame, shame yeah. on Luther. And that's the argument you guys want to make. That's the, you guys want to point to chastity as the as the support for the catholic church that that should just pause and rethink your argument at that point or um i mean what it just the, the like the like uh what's this you lutherans you follow a man we follow christ when you <laughs> yeah. the catholics literally have the pope <laughs> that's you that is following a man that's your that's your whole deal is following a man that's why I, I do like, I do prefer the term um, papist to Roman Catholic because it at least gets at the heart of what they're doing, which is if you're Roman Catholic, you're supposed to be submitting to the Pope. But then um, if you're like a traditional Roman Catholic, that only applies if you like what the Pope says and you think he's in line with previous dogma. Um, <laughs> and if you're, if you're a liberal Roman Catholic, it only applies if you like what the Pope says and he's leaning in your direction. Uh, so uh, well, I heard someone told me this years ago, I can't remember who it was. Um, I think it was a Presbyterian pastor um, of mine who said, the closer you get to, to Rome, like geographically, um, kind of the more traditional they are, but the further away you get from the, the Pope, like then the less they care what the Pope actually says. But then by that definition, then you're no longer Roman Catholic, right? Like you're not actually submitting to 
to the church at that point. But then you say, you know, the problem with Protestantism is everyone does whatever they want. Yeah, it'd be it, I'd it, be it, interested it, to hear from a Roman Catholic who would approach it honestly and, and ask them how many denominations exist under the Pope. It's it. There, there's more theological diversity in the Church of Rome than there is in all of Protestantism. I mean, you can find uh, all anything, any flavor of Protestant kind of sectarianism you can find under Roman Catholicism. It's not. It's an amazing thing to me. Like, and and this too, which I don't think most people know. Like when you, if you, so here's a next next time you're having dinner with a priest, or whatever your Catholic friends, but a priest, a, a, a theologically trained Roman Catholic, ask them if they think that Moses wrote Genesis. Just that simple question. And I'll put money down that it's no, even if it's a very conservative American priest who's against Nancy Pelosi and everything, they are not going to, They their biblical theology is just as bad as the United Methodist Church. I mean, they don't, their understanding of inspiration is as bad as the worst progressive Protestant, that their three Isaiahs and the JDEP, the source theory stuff, and they're just, they're higher critics. And you realize that the, the reason, it's an amazing thing, because when you're a higher critic and you're Protestant, then you lose things like women's ordination and uh, the, the, uh, the ethic of marriage and all this gets lost because that's the driving point. You're Catholic, you're a higher critic. You don't lose those things because those things weren't coming from the Bible in the first place. They were just coming from tradition. So it's like that goofy uh, fail video that you see where the guy's sitting on a, on, a, on a patio chair, one of those plastic patio chairs, and someone kicks the leg out from under him and it knocks the leg off and the chair doesn't even move. He's just sitting there. And that's like, that's a cat. You kick the Bible out from under the Catholics and they don't even move because they were never, it was never supporting them to begin with. It's an amazing thing. And of course, whenever, okay. The point that here's the key thing for when talking to Catholics is you just should ask them this question. What do you or your Pope require me to believe that was not taught to me by the prophets and apostles? That's the critical question. What do you require of me that the prophets and the apostles do not? And that's really when we get to it, because it's, it's even the fact that there is something on that list that shows the tyranny of papal theology. And, and that tyranny is oppressive. And if you want to say, but look, in, if, you, if you have a tyrant, then the trains run on time, which it seems to be the argument, right? Like the good thing about fascism is that the trains are always on time or whatever that saying is. Say, look, the good thing about papal tyranny is more people go to church. Well, it's not even true, but it's also <laughs> obscene. It's an obscene argument. And I'm sorry for getting upset. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting because on the other end of the spectrum, I have some uh, commentaries that have been written in recent years by some Roman Catholics where they argue for justification by grace alone through faith alone. Um, and I've been kind of surprised by it. I'm like, how did they let you write this and give approval to this? But on the verses where you would think they would try to try to go the other direction with that, they're very clear. They even have like little essays in the commentary about this. And I'm like, this is just weird. So, I mean, you've got people even with a Lutheran understanding of, of that. And cause if you read it, like I know sometimes the definitions vary even on some of those words, uh, between us and them, but, um, 
And some of these commentaries I've read, like they even explain it. And I'm like, wow, that sounded absolutely Lutheran. That was really mm. good explanation. Um, and so you even have that going on too. So if they're still able to act as a priest in the Roman Catholic church, then <laughs> why, why are you giving me a hard time for saying the same things they're saying? It's just strange. Like, there's so many different opinions in, in groups or uh, on that. So these kind of arguments yep. are weird to me that they still have to go after the Lutherans 500 hey, years hey, later for stuff. Makes- Luther makes them crazy. The other thing, just to point this out, and I've been thinking about it, is that so both Catholicism and Orthodoxy in the United States, I think, are better than Catholicism and Orthodoxy in the in their native state, and that is because they are a little bit more Protestant, or maybe dare I say, a little bit more Lutheran. <laughs> so, like, if you if you go to Rome to see the Catholicism there, or you go to Greece to see the Orthodoxy there, it does not it is not nearly as sort of biblical or gospel forward as orthodoxy and Catholicism in the United States. And, and the best Catholics and Orthodox guys are the ones who used to be Presbyterians (laughs) and have like a little bit of biblical theology still in the back and that, and then they're just kind of layering it. So the argument, the argument, it's, it's just a curious thing that the argument for Catholicism the strongest argument is by ex-Protestants, and it's probably because it is more of a Protestant argument than it is a Catholic argument. They still bring that Protestant shape of mind to the theological work that they're doing. And I don't think they can see it in themselves, but we should be able to see it from this from this angle. You want to do one more? Sure. Now you're all, now you're all excited. <laughs> um, this is a question on evangelism. Um, I'm looking at the way into the way Christians with various traditions do evangelism. And in your article on a Lutheran theology of evangelism, you begin by saying that Lutherans who do evangelism often abandon their Lutheran doctrine. Then your article sums up that doctrine. Please, could you clarify three things? In what ways do Lutherans abandon the doctrines you summarize? Um, typically and commonly, I'm not expecting you to have time to give me lots of details. Um, secondly, do Lutheran pastors encourage ordinary Christians to talk about their faith to unsaved people and invite any who are interested to come to church, then if God wills it, they will want to respond to the preaching and get baptized. Uh, thirdly, as a non-Lutheran, what, I was converted through a booklet that explains sin and why Jesus died for us. And based on Revelation 3.20, um, I stand at the door and, and knock um, and invited readers to pray a prayer to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. I've been a thankful Christian for over 45 years since then. So would you say I was converted through that prayer and born again, or was I not born again until I was baptized in water a year or so later? Um, open to learning from you, etc. So Lutherans and evangelism, go. Uh, that's an old article. I just looked it up. That was from 2011. Hey, so we're still reading your old stuff. I'll put, we'll post it up in the link. Uh, Lutheran Theology of Evangelism, some theses. I haven't looked over this in years. But I was think I it must have been I, I must have been worked up about something. That's when I write theses. Maybe I'll write some anti-papist theses <laughs> after we're done here. But uh, the so what what often happens is that evangelism. So if we could get some terms here. So what if we call evangelism is uh, the gospel being brought by the church to those who are outside the church, so that they hear the preaching of 
of the law and their own sin and the gospel, the kindness of God in Christ, and they're brought into the fellowship of God's love. That's the work of evangelism. Okay. Now, uh, a lot of American evangelicals make that in almost a sacramental activity that every Christian, their chief vocation is that of missionary. And they understand that evangelism, they understand that conversion, and here's probably the main problem, that conversion is an act of the will. And they believe that our will is free to choose God, but disinclined to do that. So let's, if we can be precise on this, that most American evangelicals think that the unbeliever can become a believer, but they just don't want to. So that your job is to talk them into it. Your job is to convince them. That's why the services that are set up as revivalistic services are built the way that they are. They assume that the unbeliever who comes into this service can make a decision for Christ, but they don't really want to. So you've got to move them, stir them up, etc. So that the the Christian comes to the unchristian, assuming that their will is free but open to manipulation. And now I'm here to manipulate your will. Now that's a very crass way of saying it, but I think it's a, it's explanatory for most of the evangelistic activity. Now, to, to maybe be a little bit more charitable, the, the, the it could just be simply that I think that you have to make a choice. And so I want to provide opportunities for you to choose. You'll hear it like this. God's voted for you. The devil's voted against you. You break the tie. Ugh. Now, that that whole picture of evangelism, it asserts something that we deny and denies something that we assert. I should make a chart. I will make a chart while I talk about it. And it has to do with the, um, the doctrine of conversion and the way that it changed through history. I got a marker here. Luther taught from the scriptures that conversion was an act of God and uh, God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. So, so the Holy Spirit and the Word was what worked to change the heart. Melanchthon came in and said, well, and this is after Luther died, well, it's the Holy Spirit and the Word, but we are the ones who accept it in our will. And so Melanchthon added in the presence of the will of God. And then Calvinism separated the internal and external call. And what that did was it took the word out. So that now Calvinism and Reformed Christianity, and especially the revivalistic Reformed Christianity, think that conversion is a matter of the Holy Spirit and the will. Okay, so you'll notice what's happened. The word is missing. And the will is present. That's the problem. So, so this is the this is where the theology is different. So everyone says that the Holy Spirit has something to do with this, but over here it's well, it's the Holy Spirit moving my own will. If you feel the Holy Spirit in your heart, etc., and it denies the efficacy of the Word. So the re the way that Lutheran evangelism will look different from evangelical evangelism is that we're going to deny the will and assert the Word. We're going to be over here. Whereas normal kind of non-Lutheran evangelism is going to be over there. So the typical things that are rejected in normal evangelistic things are 
it's not it's not the efficacy of the word of god a sacramental understanding of the word of god but rather the word comes as information that's informing my will and my choice we're going to say no we're going to let the word do the work and the lord works through the word to convert the will so that the will is not the object of conver- sorry the will is not the tool of conversion but the object of conversion it is the thing that is being converted so that's theologically the look at it I have thoughts on that before we go to the Maybe the second question, which was normal Christians doing this? Uh, no, I thought that was really helpful. I, I think that is a, a big part of or the underlying issue is um, trying to manipulate someone um, is the way you are. If you grow up with that, which um, I, I kind of came out of that, um, it does affect the way you do evangelism. It's a very it's a very different looking thing. Um, I think part of it for, for us as Lutherans, um, I, I've seen various, I've seen pastors criticize it too. There, there is an element where um, maybe Lutherans haven't done a great job of this in some ways. I think part of it is um, a lot of our churches are um, uh, of the older generation. And I think they still kind of assume like a lot of the people around them are Christians or go to church. Sometimes that's the impression I get, you know, that. And so maybe, maybe there's less urgency there because of that. I don't know. Um, but when it comes to like everyday Christians, the laity, uh, I think we overthink it too. Like it doesn't have to be complicated. Like God has placed you in various vocations. He places people in your path in those vocations. Um, and as you have opportunity, um, then you can share the gospel with them. As Luther yeah. says, the most loving thing you do with your neighbors, share the gospel. Um, I, I really think there's been some books written on this recently. And I think it's, they're, they're, they have various things that are helpful, but that, in our day and age, hospitality is a big way to, to share the gospel with others. Just invite them into your home. I might have a paper uh, on a, from a presentation a couple of years ago that I found really helpful. It talked about the three tables, the, the Lord's table, the potluck table, and then the third one is the table in your home. And that they encourage their church, at least invite three unbelieving families into your home a year just to love them and, and to make those connections. You know, people, you know, that, you know, are not believers, bring them into your home first um, and love on them and, and get to know them and see, see what happens with that. You know, like just being loving and kind people and showing interest in them in a day and age where people are so lonely and disconnected um, rather than having programs and like a set list of things to say, like meeting people where they're at and just, um, being as as Luther says in Freedom of Christian, we're, we're the hands and feet of Christ to people, and the mouth of Christ to people, and just loving them as Jesus would call us to love them, um, where He's placed us. Like you don't have to go looking for this stuff. Jesus is bringing people in your path all the time, um, and I think if we just looked at it more organically, uh, that it eliminate a lot of these discussions. It'd be more more natural, if you will, for us to do if we just thought about it in these ways. I think that's really helpful. And that answers that second question. Do, do, do Lutherans encourage normal Christians to speak of Christ? Absolutely. The, the reason, I think theologically why it's different is that evangelicalism exalts the vocation of missionary or everybody is a minister. Everybody has to have a ministry and it lifts that up above the vocation of family and work, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas we would embed that light of Christianity into our vocations. So mm. then we're called to the people who we're called to. So there's a different vocational approach. Um, but 
but certainly we would. And we would say that every Christian is there speaking the love of God in Christ to their neighbor, forgiving their sins, blessing them in that way, and so forth. Now, this then brings us to the third question was the guy had a tract and he read it. He gave his life to Christ. He was baptized a year later. When was he born again? What say you, Pastor Packer? Um, I mean, it's interesting. I just saw a debate on this among some Lutherans, but I mean, we do believe the word converts. So, you know, if if you read something and even if we don't think the, the theology in it was like 100% accurate, even its use of Revelation 3.20, um, that can, does God convert through his word? The, the answer is, yeah. I mean, God converts through his words. Should baptism have been delayed a year? No. Um, but I think that's getting to a different discussion of what they're asking. Uh, can God convert them through the word? Uh, as they hear the word preached, uh, the Lutheran answer is yes, the word of God converts. So and going back to your chart, right? The Holy Spirit plus the word. Uh, what is it that converted them? It was the Holy Spirit plus the word, even a word we would maybe say was preached imperfectly through a tract, you know? So that's my answer. That's great. There's, there's <laughs> four times. Me. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, the Bible talks about being born again four times. So John 3, Titus 3, that's baptism. Uh, James 1, 1 Peter 1, that's the seed of the word by which we're born again. So we're so that rebirth, is a, that conversion is accomplished through the word in baptism and uh, apart from baptism. So I would say that, in fact, you could say, well, I was born again when I heard and believed the word of God. And I was born again when I was baptized. That you, This is, I, and I don't know, I don't want to, you know, put it on a chart and try to figure it out. But neither does God. He's, he's borning us again. <laughs> He's, he's, he's the one that's doing the work. And if these two things are separated for whatever occasion, then it's separated. Okay. So, um, so we rejoice that you believe that remember conversion to, to be, to be a believer is to know these two most difficult things to know that I'm a sinner deserving of God's wrath and that Christ has taken that wrath in my place so that God loves me and has forgiven my sins. That is repentance, to know those two things. And that is conversion, to know those two things. And those two things can only be known by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word. And so to know those things is to be born again. So we rejoice that that you are born again too. God be praised. We would never say, oh, well, you believe, so now you don't have to be baptized. No, because the Lord has, he He wants to give gifts upon gifts upon gifts. This is this is how the Lord, how the Lord does it. So he's profoundly generous with his grace to us. Uh, I saw a discussion recently where some Lutherans were discussing this and saying that, um, no, they wouldn't really be converted until they were baptized. And, um, and, and I, I think they're trying to protect what we believe about baptism, but then on the flip side, you end up rejecting what the Bible says about the word. Um, like baptism is efficacious because it's word plus water. Like that's, you know, that's kind of our thing is that it's the word of God in and with the water that does these things. And so um, it's it's an odd thing to me to try to to separate those two things, uh, the, the preaching of the word and baptism, and almost pitting them against each other. Whereas like you just said, it's just uh, God working through various means to be overabundantly generous and giving us the gospel. So that's right. Perfect. Well, we better, that's a great, we better call it quits there because I just saw what time it is. But thank, any closing thoughts, Pastor Packer? No, I think I think what we just said is good enough. Thanks everyone for sending in the questions. Wolfmuther.co slash contact is the best way to get the questions to us. And October 14th, if this is not yet October 14th, 2023, and you're watching this video, 
then we're having a young adult conference down here at uh, St. Paul Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. The topic is the conscience, uh, free and forgiven. And that's for young adult Lutherans age 18 to 35. Uh, it should be a, a lot of fun, just not only to the topic, but especially the fellowship and getting together. Uh, the so We got social events the night before, the night of, etc. cetera. So uh, uh, info, I'll put info about that conference in the uh, in the description below. I think that's it. Uh, God's peace be with you. I don't know how to stop the video. There it is.